Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and this is a podcast of the round table. We record whatever we're able. We ain't efficient, we're sable. Don't give us a label. Wow. Did you actually write some lyrics there to sing, Jason? I mean, you know, Josh, uh, any time. Dave's not the only Jewish rapper on this show. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are we what are we singing about in this episode? In this uh, in the season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1975. And we are here at our first feature episode. And we are looking at the directorial debut, the joint directorial debut of Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, which is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Of course, Gilliam and Jones are two members of the Monty Python comedy troupe, along with Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, and Michael Palin, all of whom co-wrote this film and co-star in it, playing multiple roles as they do on their sketch comedy show, Monty Python's Flying Circus, which this is sort of a spinoff from, I guess we could say. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, a comedy group takes uh, some of the things that they're best at and blows it out into uh, higher volume, so to speak. Yes. And and this actually was, I think it was in between seasons of the TV show. So this is something where they were still at the height of kind of doing the sketch comedy show when they took a detour to make this film. It wasn't like post uh, popularity or something like that. So this is really like, yeah, the height of their success as a comedy troupe, I think. And Jones and Gilliam had never directed a movie. These guys, it just seems like it was one of those, hey, kids, let's put on a show, whatever we can make, let's make. And uh, it came out to be a wild success. Yes. Yeah. They had previously put out a movie. Um, called and now for something completely different, which I, I was wondering about this, whether I had seen it before, because I hadn't realized what that is, is it's a collection of sketches from the TV show, but it's not just like a compilation. They redid all the sketches and shot them specifically as a movie without like the studio audience and the laugh track. And so I started wondering like, some of these classic Monty Python sketches, did I see the original version or did I see the version that was created for that movie? And I, I really have no idea because it's been so long since I watched that stuff. Right. It's it's funny to think like no one would ever do that now. But, you know, this is the mid 70s. It's that type of uh, access point. Right. The, the theater experience, the communal experience. That was the, the big end all say all of watching something like this. Right. So what, what were what were some of your favorite sketches, Josh? You were a child of the 70s. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember watching Monty Python on I mean, I think it was on PBS here. And maybe by the time that was maybe in the 70s. And when we were growing up and were like teenagers, which was probably when I would have been interested in Monty Python, it was on maybe Comedy Central or something like that. So, I mean, of course, there's like the parrot sketch. That's a that's a classic. And the Ministry of Silly Walks. You know, these are all yeah, that one always, ones. that one just makes me laugh out loud. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't seen any of that stuff in a long time. I did notice when watching this movie that Net Netflix surprisingly has a lot of Monty Python content. I watched a good amount. Yeah. All right. So but yeah, that that is the thing is that, you know, when they were just was airing on TV in the UK and then in order to introduce it to an American audience. They actually 
made this movie. And that was seemingly, it seems inefficient, but that was the best way or what they perceived as the best way to kind of bring those sketches to, to American viewers. Well, they were so popular in Great Britain, right? Like when you look at like uh, how they made this movie and it's like, we asked Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin to help fund it and maybe Elton John or George Harrison or whoever, right? It's like um, they they seem to have uh, broken through in the zeitgeist at the time and just had access to whatever they wanted to do. Right. Well, I mean, in part, the reason that they got rock groups and uh, record companies to finance this film is because a movie studio would not. So they're popular, but in this certain like counterculture kind of realm, they're the rock band of comedy. Yeah, right. And I think, uh, you know, uh, those guys by funding those movies didn't have to pay taxes uh, that they otherwise would have had to. Yes. And <laughs> there's one thing we love. It's when rich people don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. Or when rock and rollers talk about taxation. Yes. So this movie was successful. Um, I, I kind of uh, did some rough conversions here uh, on figures that were in pounds from 1975. So this may not be 100% All accurate, right. but it looks like it grossed about $1.9 million on its budget of approximately $410,000. So not a huge hit or anything. But the other thing, of course, with this is the that zeitgeist element that it maybe it didn't make a massive amount of money, but it achieved so much in awareness of Monty Python as an entity that it then fuels the further success of the TV show and their ability to make more movies later on. And also like, dude, this was playing constantly on TV when we were kids. Yeah. And so that figure doesn't, I assume, include later like re-releases and, and all of that kind of stuff where it still gets. I feel like it was not that long ago that there was another Fathom Events showing of this movie or whatever, where it probably brought in a, a bit more money and it just keeps happening over and over again. I mean, at the time of recording, they just uh, had the coronation of King Charles this morning, right? So you could see them doing something like that just to celebrate that or whatnot. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. The coronation of, of King Charles, almost as ridiculous as this movie. Me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it was I it wasn't exactly a highly awarded film, but I did find it interesting. It was nominated for the 1976 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. The Hugos are a like science fiction and fantasy award. So I guess they're they're saying that this is somehow a fantasy film. <laughs> yeah, I well, sure, why not? It's uh takes place in 932 AD, Josh. So it could be uh some type of fantastical event yeah i mean it, you know the whole idea of, it's got magic realism and you know yes. kind of surreal nature to it it does yeah and the whole the whole idea of the holy grail and the the sword and the stone and all the king arthur myths is is a frequent source material for fantasy stories so it just it was not something that i would have expected necessarily well they're full of surprises the pythons and the hugos they are they are indeed uh so critics were mixed on this film and seemingly on Monty Python in general at the time, which is not surprising that like a goofy comedy troupe wasn't universally acclaimed by critics. But uh, some of them were on the wavelength of this film. Uh, Vincent Canby in The New York Times was pretty positive. He said, Monty Python and the Holy Grail has some low spots, but anyone at all fond of the members of this brilliant British comedy group, which more or less justifies Sunday night television in New York, shouldn't care less. 
Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a marvelously particular kind of lunatic endeavor. It's been collectively written by the Python troupe and jointly directed by two of them, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, so effectively that I'm beginning to suspect that there really aren't six of them, but only one, a fellow with several dozen faces who knows a great deal about trick photography. The gags are nonstop, occasionally inspired, and should not be divulged, though it's not giving away too much to say that I particularly liked a sequence in which the knights, to gain access to an enemy castle, come up with the idea of building a Trojan rabbit. So that that is a funny uh, thing where none of, spoilers guys, none of <laughs> them uh, actually uh, are in the rabbit when it enters, so yes. it's a complete waste of time. So I like how they always like just undercut themselves that way. But um, I think Camby hits on a good point in that like their collective commitment and point of view is so crystallized, like they're all so committed to each thing that it is a very clear, distinct, singular point of view through this collection. Yeah, it is. And even though to varying degrees, these guys are famous on their own and we recognize them, especially I would think John Cleese and Eric Idle, who are the ones who went on to be the most famous like as performers. Um, they really disappear into all of these different roles to the point where I feel like going online later and seeing which role each person played, I was still like, oh, right, he was that because there's there's such variety to it. And they are really just fully immersed in every one of these little parts. And it's, you know, in both this and Life of Brian, they give Graham Chapman the lead and he's so committed to those characters. It's really like um, it sells the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, Chapman here, of course, plays King Arthur, who is, to summarize the plot, I guess, is uh, rounding up various uh, knights, just random people that he deems worthy, it seems like. And they form the round table and they're going to go on a quest for the Holy Grail as deemed by God, who is a Terry Gilliam animation bit. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there is uh you know, Sir, Sir Bedivere the Wise, Sir Lancelot the Brave, Sir Gadahad the Pure. Sir Robin, the not so quite brave as Sir Lancelot, or the not yeah not quite so brave, and I liked uh, Sir not appearing in this film. Yes, which is a, <laughs> a picture of a baby who is, is I believe one of the the children of one of the Monty Python members, yeah. <laughs> just showing up. Yes, William Palin, the son of uh, son of Michael Palin, shows Michael. up as a, as a little baby. It must have been fun to just say Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. I, you, clearly, they were having a very good time even though there's challenges and it was a low budget that they cobbled together from all those sources. Like, I feel like a lot of the things with these comedy troops, as you can tell, when they're having fun and there's such camaraderie um, and that comes across in the film. And I think there's a lot of that going on here. I think you're right, Josh. Thank you, Jason. So Stanley Kaufman in The New Republic had some uh, backhanded compliments, kind of. He said, here is Monty Python and the Holy Grail which is neither as sparkling as it is said to be, nor as bad as it seems to be at the start. But it's pretty good. Thus, as British phenomena go these days, exceptional. If you are watching Monty Python's Flying Circus, you have more than some idea of the kind of film this is, except that the film has fewer sags and is better photographed. Holy Grail is a series of skits on one general theme, so is disguised as an organic story. It too has hits and misses. When it hits, it makes some clear statements of national humor. Whatever their flops in other comic veins, 
film Slapstick, for instance, the British have always excelled at the tease. Leg pull is the British term, and the pleasant glow of the leg pull, rather than the yak or boff, is the aim of Holy Grail. What's up for teasing here is the whole body of Arthurian legend, and the basic leg pull is of the sanctity of that legend and of British sanctimonious toward it. Speaking of sanctimonious, <laughs> what the fuck was that? Yeah, I'm not really <laughs> seriously. Sure I'm not sure what, what a yacht or boff is really exactly here. I mean, Josh, I think I've uh, you know, I've made a living in comedy for close to 20 years now. And I don't know any of I've never been like, you know, gotten off stage or done a sketch and been like, great leg pull, but you could have done a little more yawking there or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't understand exactly what the yawking and the boffing is, but I mean, I think the leg pull idea is, you know, the idea, like, I think it's kind of what you were saying about the undercutting, right? It's the tease where they're showing you one thing and then kind of pulling your leg, you know, about it or whatever, pulling the legs out from under it. I feel like is what it's doing, you know, the pompousness mm. of King Arthur, and then they deflate that. And that that's, I believe, kind of what he's, there's more to this review, obviously, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. Misdirects and subversion yes. and, okay, all right, well, <laughs> I'll have to work on my yaks and bobs. You do that, <laughs> you do that. I did enjoy that. I mean, and I appreciated this, you know, they're, they're, he's trying to offer a very serious analysis of this film. Um, and Richard, by making up words and <laughs> I mean, just throwing them in there. We don't know what 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 British comedy scholars were talking about in 1975. Maybe maybe he's right about it. Um, so Richard Schickel in Time Magazine also had some deeper analysis. He said, King Arthur, as London's Monty Python troupe imagines him, is really an awful, sensible, decent chap. Played by Graham Chapman, he is the kind of tweedy fellow who should be sitting on the Tory party backbench in modern Britain, rather than running around 6th century England forming roundtables and looking for holy grails. Arthur's adventures reach no logical conclusion. They are simply brought to an abrupt end when a police car rolls up and the entire roundtable is rounded up. This is a key image in the film, which pats down the entire chivalric tradition for bloody and dangerous residual ideas. Along with the high comedy, this determined insistence on the gory stupidity of ancient but still potent fantasy is what holds the film together. Grail is as funny as a movie can get, but it is also a tough-minded picture, as outraged about the human propensity for violence as it is outrageous in its attack on that propensity. Well, that's interesting because if you, you know, watch this on Life of Brian, they like they definitely don't have a, they don't play favorites when it comes to killing characters off <laughs> and they just, you know, uh, throw them away and uh, just uh, have such a willy nilly attitude like, you know. Um, so I get that. Like, it's just like, you know, we're playing with the form of it and and just how little life maybe meant uh, to higher classes or religious zealots at certain points in time. Right. Yeah. I feel like there's less. You know, you maybe have to strain a little to find the social commentary in this film more so than in Life of Brian, which I have seen, but not recently. I know you watched that a lot more recently, but it seemed like that was a bit more pointed in its critiques like of uh, religion and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think you get some of that here where, you know, uh, like when Lancelot goes in and uh, 
saves uh, the other night from all the siren women and just starts murdering them. And no, I want to stay. And he just, just keeps killing all of them. So um, it's, uh, you know, but that, but honestly, even if there's no social critique on anything, funny is funny. So who cares? Right. right. Well, yeah. And I think this is a movie that is, is more, maybe more so than life of Brian, just focused on this nonstop barrage of gags and jokes. And that's the idea that, you know, the story doesn't, there's not really much of a plot. It doesn't really hold together, but it doesn't really matter whether it holds together. Yeah, I think that uh, actually it works to the advantage, the chaos of the whole thing. And just um, like we keep using the word undercutting, but like every time they get close, there's another thing that stops them. And I know they all decided like he should never find it. And I think they did a great job of playing with the form of film, you know, where you're cutting to these modern things or there's animation and just all these just kind of uh, side winding roads that take them off the course really work well here. Right. And I think I can't remember which one, but I, I think there was a quote from at least one of them who said that he was disappointed with how the ending of this film went. And uh, I mean, as Richard Schickel, honestly, it, there's more in that review where he basically just describes the entire ending, which I always find amazing. in These old film reviews where they just straight up give the entire plot all the way through to the end of the film and nobody cared. And now that would be like, you know, you'd get crucified to, to use a life. That's Ryan the wrong reference. movie. Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea that basically like the movie ends with this just very abrupt anticlimax and then they cut to black. And there's not even any end credits. They're just playing this like kind of jaunty organ music over the, the black screen for like two minutes. Yeah, it's funny. It's a it's again, you're playing with the form of movies. And, you know, if you want to talk about like referencing history, that's referencing the history of film. Right. That whole kind of like Saturday matinee. Doo, 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 doo. Let's go to the lobby, get ourselves a snack. The, sh the show's over. Come back for the next one. Right? right. Right. No. And I agree. I think it's funny that it ends that way. But um, I think it was it was at least in part because um, and I should have written down this quote, but basically it was like we, we ended it that way because we couldn't think of anything else. And, you know, <laughs> there's not the budget for for something beyond that. But I think it worked out. You know, it's one of those things like we were just talking about in our Jaws episode, like the constraints end up pushing you in a direction that turns out to be the right one for the movie. Well, Josh, you've always been a fan of the philosopher Goethe. And uh, I know he was the one who always brought it up that the parameters of art are what make it so great. Yeah, he was uh, the seventh member of Monty Python, right? Um, <laughs> oh, Josh, you and your ribald humor. Thank you. Um, that's not ribald at all. <laughs> well, did you boff or yock at me just there, Josh? <laughs> I don't know. Let's say both. So, I mean, um, as, as a comedy fan, Jason, I assume you'd seen this at some point in the past. You assume incorrectly, Josh. Yeah. So I actually have seen a lot more live stage Monty Python. You and I saw Spam a lot together. We did. Which is based on this, obviously. And um, I saw Eric Idle and John Cleese do a two-man show where they kind of go over their singular histories and their Python histories, which was just awesome. Like one of the great two-man or any comedy shows I've ever seen. Wonderful show. But um yeah, I never really watched the movies until uh, we got here because um, I was uh, busy trying to uh, round up some nights for quests. Mm. So, but th this was good. This was this gave me an excuse to watch all of them. Obviously, uh, it's always nice to check off these blind spots. Yeah, and so did you watch the Monty Python TV series back in the day? 
not not like you know like you said it would always be on so like i'd seen bits and pieces but i never really focused on it you know i'd seen maybe life of brian before um but that was when i was a teenager and it just it just never got to me uh until now and i watched all three of the movies in reverse meaning of life then life is brian then holy grail yeah and uh i didn't i mean i only watched this again this time but i had seen all of that stuff and i did i wasn't like a huge fan, but I definitely watched those movies. I mean, I I think whether they were on TV, I remember renting Meaning of Life on like VHS from the video store specifically. The other stuff I may have just watched on on TV on, you know, Comedy Central or where whoever was airing these movies and also the Monty Python sketch comedy show. But certainly I think as a teenager, when I was watching stuff like The Kids in the Hall a lot, um, this was something that I also sought out and enjoyed very much. I, I always found Monty Python stuff hilarious. So it's something that, you know, things like that, that you watch, especially comedy that you watch when you're younger, you wonder like, is this going to hold up? And I feel like this movie really does that. It's, it's very funny, but it also does have this, this kind of intelligence behind it that you can recognize maybe more so as you, if you come to it as an adult. So I was, I was glad to see that. I'm sure I'd watched it sometime between when I was a teenager and now again, but it certainly had been a while. Yeah, it's still, it's, you know, definitely smart. You're, you're right. there. Yes. So Dave, this seems like it's right up your alley. You're always uh, bringing up this, us, this kind of comedy sketch stuff. Uh, were you a fan of this one growing up? So I don't remember if I ever actually watched the movie uh, or, or the movies in general from Monty Python. I just know I saw a bunch of Monty Python stuff as a teenager. And of course, you know, like you said, I, I, always loved sketch comedy and so I, I loved all the sketch comedy troops including monty python i just don't remember if i actually saw this particular movie but i also enjoyed it so jason uh anything else on the background of this film that you want to uh talk about i mean it's fun to like after watching it it is fun to read the uh, plot summary on wikipedia because it's just like i said it's just so chaotic and it's like and then this happens but then this takes them away from them. Then they split up and this guy goes here, but then they meet new knights and they have to fight a rabbit together, but the rabbit kills three of them. So they throw a grenade into the cave and the rest of them move on. You know, um, I just wanted to bring up Neil Innes, Josh, who wrote that song that I had referenced there and who had done uh, a lot of other music for Monty Python over the years and, uh, did the ruddles with, uh, Eric Idle. I think his contribution is, uh, pretty immense to this and i thought it was interesting because at first they let him soundtrack the whole thing but they thought it was too accurate for the undercutting that they do so that's why they picked like a lot of different stock music right and so what's left of his is the the songs that they sing which of course are great and you know you mentioned spam a lot and the fact that they have these catchy entertaining songs here is the uh sort of wellspring of of how they were able to turn this into a full-on stage musical but it does make sense that i think um, you know, the music, like we were saying that you hear at the very end over that black screen, and I'm guessing that's a Neil Innes music. And this is just this kind of jaunty, goofy music that maybe emphasizes the comedy too much. And so I would understand that they might want to pick some like serious sounding classical music instead so that there's more contrast with the comedy. Right. You're heightening the whole thing. Yeah, indeed. So uh, we'll come back then and talk more of our thoughts on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (music) 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about the debut feature from Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And, um, you know, as a directorial debut, I wonder, like, do you feel like this is, uh, you know, we'll talk about this in the legacy, but of course, Gilliam in particular had this very, has had this long, distinguished directorial career. Does this seem like a, a launch point for what he does as a filmmaker? I think so, because I think that, you know, especially when we're talking about Gilliam, right? Like, he's always working in that world of surreal and just kind of, as I mentioned, magic realism, just kind of. He is not afraid on, uh, you know, and we've talked about him before, Baron Munchausen, yeah. which not a fan, but that's okay. But again, we're looking at like, uh, you know, big sets, historical style pieces. Not that that's all he's done, right? But just kind of world building, I guess, is the is what I'm looking for there. And um, I think, you know, obviously they they built this world, right? You know, mostly shot in Scotland. But I was never like, oh no, this doesn't feel like we're not in the uh you know in 932 AD except when they wanted us to feel that way. Right. And I think that's a key thing is that they build that world effectively so that they can then undercut it as as you know we keep talking about that you're immersed in it. And so it's funnier when all of a sudden here's this like historian hosting uh you know some sort of educational TV show or whatever talking about it and it's 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 a modern looking guy with a microphone or whatever. And it's funnier then because it's more jarring and this really plays with the whole format. It's very self-referential and I think all that stuff works really well. And again, I think that's part of why the ending works because you've set that up. You've, you've set up the idea that here's this weird modern element that keeps intruding into the movie and it intrudes so much there at the end that the movie has to stop. Right. You were saying they didn't, they couldn't think of a better ending, but like, I'm like, Hey man, um, the bits that you guys committed to like, which is all of them, right? Like they saw them through like the rabbit from beginning to end, right? And then on some of these other bits with like the modern historian or like the uh, questions about the swallow, the bird, you know, yes. they were able to use them like in really, really effective callbacks to, to elevate the movie even more. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about the comedy here is that a lot of those things, they show up and you, you think it's a funny one-off bit. I mean, they could have easily just had that historian show up as a quick background gag and never shown him again. But there is a lot of cohesion to the comedy here and all of those callbacks and and the running gags that that build even some of the smaller, subtler ones. I loved the the, the bit about uh, King Arthur continually confusing three and five for some reason. And that's something that's just like a little joke when they have the holy hand grenade and he says to count to five and they're like, no, count to three. And and then later on, they're, they're going to the bridge where the, the guardian of the bridge or whatever asks them three questions. And he keeps saying like, oh, go answer the five questions. No, three questions. And it's just, they're not calling attention to it, but it's just such a weird quirk of the character that comes up as a joke again. And that obviously is the scene where they also call back the beginning bit where they're talking about what kind of swallow is flying and how it's flying and how it can migrate and everything. So that was fun. Also, uh, you know, the utilization of what they had, you know, um, the obviously very famous uh, idea of them just galloping and, you know, uh, their servants playing coconuts to make the horse noises, which, by the way, like 
that could have easily fallen flat. But man, did they commit to that? It right? never gets you know? old. It does not laugh, honestly. It's so. Funny. It's just so. It is. It's just so wildly just like, what is happening here? And they only did that because they couldn't really afford horses to make the movie. So they're like, all right, we'll just use guys making coconut sounds and we'll all gallivant around like this. Yeah, of course, it's always really funnier. And there's a great bit like toward the end. Again, I think when they're going toward that bridge where they stop and King Arthur's like, oh, the horses are getting skittish. We better proceed on foot or whatever. And they all <laughs> dismount the horses, yes, right? That, exactly. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, I like, um, you know, I also do, you know, we're talking about a singular point of view, but I think like, you know, there is a um, uh, with Chapman, there's that like real serious commitment to the quest. And then meanwhile, you have Eric Idle, who's always just like, so underwhelmed and wants no part of anything, including the songs that they sing about <laughs> him as a knight, which are funny because, you know, they're all, again, talking about how he's going to die or he's not as good as the other knights. So, right. but I like, I, I just like idle slippishness. You know, I do think you get the individual personalities. A lot of these people, Cleese, there's like a, a real strong machismo to him. Yeah. And I mean, Cleese is, is good as uh, a Lancelot. But I think, you know, we, we remember him more as the ridiculous French knight with his elaborate insults and his silly looking mustache. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And also, I uh, was reading, you know, because in those scenes, they're like throwing livestock over the over the walls to like stop the British, to yeah. stop King Arthur. And that's based on truth, which is insane <laughs> as well. Yeah. And I think there are some smart. Like, I mean, I guess in a way it's like weirdly it is social commentary. I mean, there's a scene early in the film where King Arthur is riding past like the peasants and one of them is like, oh, he's the king. And the other says, well, how do you know he's the king? And it's like, oh, because he doesn't have any shit on him, yeah. which is funny in and of itself. <laughs> but I thought it was great that there's this callback and it's not even really brought attention to it. But I feel like it's it's intentional where toward the very end of the film where they're at the final castle where they think the Holy Grail is and the French people are there again to taunt them and they dump shit on the king. And it's like, now is he no longer the king because he's got shit on him? I just thought that was a really clever thing that that they're not, you know, overemphasizing, but is is definitely intentional. Well, Josh, as you know, those other peasants uh, would question if he was ever the king anyway and what kind of society they were living in. Was it anarchistic or was it mono, you know, was it a monarchy and why? What makes him a king? Right. The idea that uh, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no, right. no form of government, which is something I always think of, too. Whenever I see a serious movie about King Arthur, I feel like the, the presentation of King Arthur in this film has ruined my ability to take the character seriously in any other format. Yeah. So that you're saying that this movie ruined a kid in King Arthur's court for you? Probably. I don't think I've seen that, but I definitely remember watching like the Guy Ritchie King Arthur movie, which is bad anyway, but also just thinking of Monty Python the whole time. Yeah, but uh, but uh, people uh, love their monarchies, as we just uh, referenced earlier. They do. They do. But again, of course, I feel like the, the coronation of, of King Charles could just as it is be a Monty Python sketch right. a lot of elements I, of it. I agree with that. So do you have another like favorite bit from this film? I think we mentioned a lot of them, honestly. Um, I mean, you know, like I, I keep coming back to the song. I really like that song and the music uh, throughout all their movies. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the the always look on the bright side of life from Life of Brian is probably the most famous or maybe the Lumberjack song from the TV show. But, but uh, the and the Galaxy song from um, Meaning of Life is also pretty famous. I'd yeah. Say. But maybe the songs from this, not quite as much. But of course, this is the one that ended up becoming a stage musical. Right. But I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't Spamalot also include uh, Bright Side of Life at the end of it there? Oh, probably so. Yeah. I mean, like you said, we did go see it, but it was a long time ago. I don't remember all the all the details of that, but that that makes sense. I feel like that's what they do with these kinds of things. They just kind of throw in an, any famous song. If it's a musical based on like a concept album or, a you know, a band's particular thing, they just uh, throw in whatever everyone remembers from it. <laughs> Uh, Dave, what about you? Did you have any favorites? Uh, a lot of the ones you guys were mentioning. Uh, I, I I did think it was funny when they uh, when they rescue him from the uh, all, all the young girls, and you know he's going on about how perilous it was, um, how it wasn't really quite perilous. Uh, I thought that whole sequence was really funny. Yeah, I do love it, and and some very British things. I feel like I remember at at the time as it like when I was first watching it, and there's the whole bit where the knights who say knee want. They need a shrubbery. And that's right. not a term we have, I feel like, in the US. It's like, what is a shrubbery? And it was ah, sort of weirdly mysterious to me. You know what shrubbery is. It's just uh, like, uh, you know, a plant or some type of yeah plant. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, and you can see in the movie what it is because they go get one and they bring it to them. But I feel like, I, I don't they know. They two, actually. Right. Yes, of course, yeah. because that's what's important. But I feel like that's not, a, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say like, oh, I'm going to plant a shrubbery outside my house maybe no. i just don't know but i know you I'd could ever... plant you could plant a shrub yeah yeah house. i just feel like it sounds like a, a british term i don't know maybe yeah. i'm just uh ignorant about gardening it which sounds is like a shitty plant like... <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think that's maybe part of the joke that it's this sort of like very bland gardening feature that might be in front of uh not a fancy house or anything that what they want is this very minor thing but it involves this quest that the knights then have to go on Right. It's, uh, you know, get us a garden gnome or a, or a pink flamingo for our lawn or something yes. like that. And of course, conveniently, they find the, the one person in the nearby village whose lifelong profession is arranging shrubberies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do, you know, talking about how they play with death, they're collecting, uh, you know, people in the Black Plague, right? And just dumping them on top of each other. And they're like, you know, can you take can you take this guy? He's dead. And, you know, he's just on top of uh, Eric Idle's shoulder. I think he's like, the guy's like, no, I'm not dead. And he goes, yeah, but you will be soon. And <laughs> they have like a, a bargaining to see if they can take the guy because uh, they say he's going to die. But the guy's like, I'm feeling better. You know, it was it was a funny interchange there. Yeah. And I feel like that's another running gag where there's multiple instances of people who are injured or near death and protest that they're not dead yet. There's the scene where Lancelot goes to that castle and is, is going to rescue the what he thinks is a fair maiden who doesn't want to get married, but is really the, the sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, sissy, I guess, what is what effeminate, they call him. Effeminate uh, son. Yeah, the effeminate son, exactly. And he just goes and murders everyone in that castle. And, right. And there is someone who uh, the, the king then says he's going to adopt you know, the princess who he was trying to marry off to his son because her parents are dead and the, the her father's like, no, I'm not dead. And again, it's this moment where they need the person to be dead for like the plot to move along. And so the characters have to insist, no, you you are dead or you're about to be dead. Yeah, I think that one of the more famous versions of that is the duel between uh, the Black Knight and King Arthur, where King Arthur chops off each limb of his 
until like he's literally limbless and he's like oh you're running away you coward you know We'll just call it a draw. Yeah, it's just a flesh wound or whatever. And I right. think everyone's seen that sequence, even if you haven't seen this movie. I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many things in this movie that are just like lines that people quote. You know, I feel like you, you maybe have heard someone saying this as a reference or just as, as a response to something, um, even if you've not not only not seen the movie, but maybe not even seen a clip of that scene, but just the references that people might not even realize are from this just because people like they've become part of this pop culture lexicon. And, and I think those are, those are key elements there. Um, I, I know certainly as a, as a kid, and this is one of these also weird misconceptions. Like uh, I had this friend who I'm sure we would quote various Monty Python things. And he would always quote this insult uh, calling someone a son of a motherless goat. And I just was assumed I was watching this movie. I was like, oh, that's something that one of the French guys says in this film, but it's not, it's from three amigos, which I've right. not seen. <laughs> So, you know, it all kind of meshes together. All right. Well, uh, I don't have anything else after your Three Amigos reference. Yeah, that's uh, some real obscure stuff from my childhood there that uh, I recalled. But uh, should we uh, should we give this one a rating then? Sure. Out of five killer bunnies. Why not? I was going to say five shrubberies, but any of these references will work. Uh, I give it three and a half. Enjoyable. Happy to watch it again. Yeah, I agree. Three and a half. I mean, that's uh, it is very funny, though, and I think it holds up. It's you know, it's scattered, it's episodic, but that's by nature. But still, if you know, if you haven't seen this for some reason, it's a classic for a good reason and uh, worth checking out. So, Dave, how would you rate this? Also going three and a half. All right. It's funny. Definitely. Yes, it is funny. I mean, it, it's it's also the kind of thing where, you know, comedy is very subjective, but it's also the kind of thing where if you watch the first like five minutes of this movie and you don't laugh, then it's not for you. You'll turn it off. But if you're laughing from the start, then this movie will be very, very enjoyable for you to watch. So uh, we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about the debut feature from Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones as directors, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And in terms of a directorial debut, we did, of course, as Jason said, we talked about Terry Gilliam's career a lot when we did our episode on the adventures of Baron Munchausen. And he's the one who, as a director, uh, went on to this really amazing career with a lot of Excellent films, hugely influential, uh, especially in that arena, like Jason was saying, of this kind of surreal, magical realist stuff. I do enjoy Baron Munchausen, as we talked about in that episode. I love 12 Monkeys at Brazil. Time Bandits is another thing from my childhood that was very influential. And uh, I do you have a favorite Terry Gilliam film, Jason. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would honestly I missed a good amount of them, but I want to rewatch a lot of them. I guess 12 Monkeys right now is probably my favorite. but. Maybe even more than that is the documentary Lost in La Mancha about how he, we probably talked about that on the Baron Munchausen episode about how he was trying to make uh, Don Quixote as a movie and just all the um, kind of obstacles he had to overcome to get there. And then um, that was before he actually made the movie. Then he did make the movie and then it kind of deflated. The yeah, it's it's not that great. That's his most recent film, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is, it's okay, but it's definitely not. I feel like there's no way it would have been as good 
as the buildup over the like 20 year period of him attempting to get it made and all these spectacular failures. And he's also had this narrative throughout his career of being sort of quixotic as a filmmaker and having all of these unrealized projects and these grand ambitions that he can't make come together. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of filmmakers like that where, uh, oh, that would have been interesting, but it just doesn't work out. Right. Um, so your favorite is 12 Monkeys also, Josh? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I, I've seen a lot, but I would probably want to revisit like Time Bandits, for example, is something that I remember just being mesmerized by when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. But I don't think I've seen it since then. So I'd, I'd love to check it out again. Yeah, I know Fisher King has such a great reputation. And I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas deserves another rewatch. Uh, it's been a long time for me. Yeah, I mean, I think he's always interesting, even when the movies aren't great. I mean, I, I do like like the Brothers Grimm, which was notoriously messed with by the Weinsteins, I think is still fun to watch, or, or Tideland, which is incredibly, incredibly dark, and I think this is too much for some people. But I mean, even when the movies don't turn out to be as successful as they are in theory, I think he's always worth watching. Oh, yeah, and, it's definitely an interesting film. Yeah, and he's still trying to get projects going, and hopefully he'll manage to do something else uh, at one point. As a director, Terry Jones... Uh, not necessarily as big a career. He did direct uh, on his own the next two Monty Python films, The Life of Brian and The Meaning of Life. Gilliam is not credited as director on those. Um, and um, he has directed a handful of other films. I've never seen anything else he directed, I think, outside of Monty Python. Did you ever see Eric the Viking, Jason? I feel like that was another kind of cultish comedy back in the, the 80s. No, I'd be interested, though. And he was an early writer on uh, Labyrinth. So, you know, again, playing in this fantastical world. Yeah. And I feel like, like you know, like a lot of these Monty Python people, he just they're so talented in so many ways. You know, he's had this career which has gone in a million different directions, you know, as a as a film director, as a TV writer, as a novelist, as a poet directing things oh, yeah. on the stage. Uh, he did a lot of this uh uh, documentary work on TV uh, in history documentaries. I mean, these guys are just so incredibly intelligent in so many different realms, not just like goofy sketch comedy. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I mean, I think that calling a goofy sketch comedy underrates what they actually did. Right. No, and I think you're right that it is you can you can see a lot of that cleverness demonstrated in the sketch comedy, but you can also just appreciate it for its goofiness. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, Graham Chapman, who, as we said, is the is the lead here, or the closest to the lead that we have as King Arthur, uh, sadly passed away very young. He died in 1989 and seemed like he was having maybe a spotty career post-Python more so than some of the other ones. I'm not familiar with any of the like film roles and things that he had after Monty Python, including Yellowbeard and The Odd Job, which were both movies that he played the lead in. And uh, and then, yeah, he passed away at age 48. So uh, something that there whenever the Monty Python guys have their various reunions that they've had periodically over the years are always paying tribute to him. And, you know, sad that he went so young. Yeah, I agree. But um, I think like all these guys, they he would have found, you know, a lot of work as a voice actor or a character actor going forward. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and I feel like probably those those misfire movies that all of these guys have made are, I'm sure, all interesting to watch. Just like Terry Gilliam's directorial films, like they're probably all interesting to watch, even if they don't fully come together. 
Yeah, I mean, they take big shots, right? And uh, you got to respect that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, of the Monty Python guys, I think John Cleese is the one who went on to become the biggest, like, celebrity, I think, especially, you know, as an actor and as a comedy star. I mean, he then, he did Faulty Towers, which is a hugely influential British sitcom. He wrote and starred in A Fish Called Wanda and Fierce Creatures. And just as an actor is in a million different things, all the, you know, ranging from silly like family comedies to playing Q in a couple of the James Bond movies and is still out there in all sorts of random stuff. He's in so many things coming up. And um, again, he's one of these guys who has found a lot of, you know, uh, supporting work, uh, voice acting work. And uh, for Fish Called Wanda, he uh, had a Best Original Screenplay nomination at the Oscars. I remember not liking A Fish Called Wanda. Have you seen that? I mean, again, it's a rewatch at this point, right? Right. Because I I don't remember it. I might have seen seen it, but I don't. I was probably too young to appreciate it, or maybe I didn't see it. Yeah, knows, I Josh? mean, I think it was something that I came to maybe as a teenager or something like that, but but having known it was from John Cleese and having enjoyed all these Monty Python shows and movies, and and I think I just like didn't laugh at it once. So I, you know, it would be worth checking out again. All right, let's do it. Yeah, for whatever year that is, we'll get that on Awesome Movie Year. Um, Eric Idle, along with John Cleese, I, I think is, is the most famous face from the Monty Python troupe. Uh, you mentioned the Ruddles, his parody of the Beatles that he created and that had kind of gone on to its own little life. And he worked as a songwriter as well, you know, in addition to Spamalot, which is probably the most famous musical thing that he's done. He's got a lot of different songwriting credits and Spamalot itself is supposed to be adapted into a movie, which I'm very skeptical of that. I don't know how you feel about that prospect of that. I mean, let's give it a shot. I, actually, you know, when you're talking about movies that like just died right away you know he he concept i think he wrote and started splitting airs and that's supposed to be a notoriously bad movie so it would be interesting to watch that but he does have a drama desk award a grammy award and Spamalot has uh i mean how many won a ton of tony's best musical best direction for mike nichols who we've talked about on here before and best uh performance by a featured actress for sarah ramirez yeah, and I remember enjoying it when we went to see it on stage. I think, you know, because it's Vegas, we probably saw a slightly truncated version, but it was definitely fun. It was a lot of fun. And I, I remember, I think they gave out like the big, um, or they sold that merch where, you know, stuffed killer bunnies was one of their big uh, toys they, they worked with. Yeah, but I guess I just, you know, I think about the the movie version of the producer's stage musical and I that that's that's in my mind how these kind of movie to musical to movie again adaptations often go. That would be bad. That would be bad. Although I will say I enjoyed like Matilda the musical that was recently yeah. in that trajectory. That was fun. Yeah, it was. And finally, Michael Palin, the last of these Monty Python guys to mention here. Um, he really has not been Sir Michael Palin. I mm. is he the only one who is a sir? I feel like they should all be. Uh, I think they offered it to John Cleese and he turned it down. Well, that's actually probably smart. Um, good for him for having a principle on that. But yeah, Michael Palin, less of a of a comedy actor than these other guys. He's made a whole career of these travel documentaries and educational documentaries that he's done for many decades and is occasionally acting and stuff, but really I think better known for that's the documentary work. Yeah, I think the last big movie he was in was Death of Stalin, but um, and he might have won a BAFTA for A Fish Called Wanda as supporting actor. But uh, 
Yeah, his if you look up his documentaries, it's so cool. Like he travels all over the world. They all have a theme, whether it's like paradise or going into Baghdad, you know, just, you know, war zones or, uh, you know, the Arctic, whatever it is. Like he's, they all have these themes and he seems to write travelogue books to coincide with all of these releases. So a very cool career for him. Yeah, have you seen any of those documentaries? No. Okay. Well, it seems like your kind of thing. So I thought- I would watch it. Yeah, yeah it sounds nice. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, I mean, another influence I feel like here is that because this is so early, like it's something that we we are used to now is these sketch comedy troops that make movies, whether it's movies based on SNL sketches that we talked about, like with our episode on the Blues Brothers, which launched that. But of course, that was five years after this and groups like the Kids in the Hall and the State and Broken Lizard, who I know, Jason, you're a big fan of and like the whitest kids, you know, even and uh, coming up to uh, Please Don't Destroy, who have a movie that they are working on right now. And I feel like all of this kind of originates with this movie. I think you're right. And it's always interesting to see like what works and what doesn't work. You know, I just watched quasi the latest uh, uh, broken lizard one. And I think it uh, doesn't work, but they owe a lot of uh, debt to this film. Yeah. And I think another thing that like I was talking about, you can tell, you know, these comedy troops are often like rock bands, you know, they're, they're began, before these people are famous when they're just friends or they're in the same college or just in the same improv troupe or whatever. And you can tell the camaraderie and like, you know, the kids in the hall, for example, when you watch that movie brain candy, where they were all fighting with each other, like you can tell that it just doesn't come together because they don't have that, that hive mind that we were talking about. Well, yeah, you, you know, I saw something recently, you know, we talked about the 10 and the state and we all love the state. And they were like, before uh, the TRL studio was the TRL studio. That was their office when they were like 22 to 24, just working at MTV. And it's like, it's very heady if you're just out of college and you're, you know, living such a life. Right. And, and, you know, like rock bands, they're sort of tied to each other all the time. You know, we talk about these Monty Python reunions and these guys, the ones who are still alive, they're like in their eighties now, and they're still, you know, expected to have these little reunions and collaborations. Why not? Yeah. Go for it. So, Dave, I know this is kind of your area. Is a, do you have any other favorite like sketch comedy troupe movies or anything you wanted to mention? I mean, you, you kind of you nailed all of like the big ones that have gone on to do these things. I mean, yeah, the state obviously all getting together to do Wet Hot and then the 10 and then uh, all the SNL movies that we probably talked about while doing the Wayne's World episode. Yeah, I mean, these are definitely the things that I love. These kinds of like sketches turned Movies that are just totally stupid and ridiculous and funny. Right. And even Super Troopers is uh, yeah. the one I would add to that list. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm i sort of lukewarm on uh, Broken Lizard. I, I wanted to mention a movie that I watched recently from a sketch troupe called The Vacationeers, who I'm not familiar with their sketches at all. And they're not like famous as a sketch troupe, but they made a couple movies, uh, including It's a Disaster, which is kind of blends them with with more famous people like David Cross and Julia Stiles, which is a really fun black comedy about the end of the world that I, I think is kind of underrated. And uh, I, I would recommend checking out. I like that movie. Yeah. I watched that one. It's, yeah. a, it's a good one. So uh, yeah. And I think Dave also like the, the parody type movies that aren't from sketch comedy troops, but things like Kentucky fried movie that we sure. did an episode on and like the, the, all the Zucker brothers stuff that comes from this too. Yeah, absolutely. I would also uh, throw in Tenacious D in the pick of destiny, which I love so much and uh, you know, comes from all the Tenacious D stuff. Yeah. So uh, anything else on the legacy of uh, Monty Python you want to talk about, Jason? It's good. It is good. Yes. So we're off to a really a good start here for this season. Two classic yeah. films that we liked. 
Because sometimes we talk about these classic films and and they don't work for us. But that was yeah, not no. the case here. We like these movies and that's nice. So Well, we might ruin it with our next one there. Josh. We'll see. So uh, that is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can say me to us online hey and on yo. social media. Can we hear it in a high voice though, Josh? Say, say me. Like that. That was too high pitched, I think. I think, yeah, you need a little more authority to it. Yeah, I don't have any authority on it. All right. All right. Well, we're on social media awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. Uh, Go for Jason, of course, has uh, been cut up by uh, King Arthur. He's just sliced off all its limbs. But Eat This Comedy is still out there on Instagram and as a website. And uh, Josh, go for Jason, Letterbox. Let's just do that. Yeah, check us out on Letterbox, definitely. So uh, my website also uh, cut off at the knees and various other places, but still a lot of old stuff there at joshbellhateseverything.com. You can also check out Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, where, you know, might be the most active place, really. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. Where you can uh, quote some Monty Python jokes to us. Uh, yeah, you can be do fun. all those things. Yeah. So, Jason, what is in our next episode? Josh, we are going to the, the bomb, the box office flop of 1975. Ken Russell, very prolific this year. And this film is called Listomania. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Very curious to see how that goes. So tune in next time for Listomania. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.